November, 1805. We're near present-day Point Ellis, Washington State. You're hearing members of the Corpse of Discovery, led by Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. The American explorers have just reached the Pacific coastline. Although joyous at this cataclysmic event, today there's no celebration. Only the knowledge that winter is coming. They'll have to make camp and get through the season. Undersupplied, undermanned, and worried. But these are men and women who for two years have trekked through unknown lands and bodies of water, meeting inhabitants both friendly and hostile. The party held a vote on where to make camp. Participating was Sacagawea, the Shoshone guide, and Clark's African servant, York. On November 24th, camp moved to the south side of the Columbia River, near what is today Astoria, Oregon. And then, they waited. The first harsh winter on the Pacific coast would mirror many yet to come for 19th century settlers. Disease was rampant, lives were short. After the Erie Canal was completed in 1825, joining the Great Lakes to the Atlantic Ocean, it gave Americans easier access to the interior of the country. Soon, western frontier beaver trappers of the 1820s gave way to religious missionaries and anyone else looking for a new beginning. By the middle of the 19th century, the West was populated with Americans, Spanish, French, Texans, British, Mexicans, Chinese, and those of the many tribes of natives slowly dwindling in size. Two generations after Lewis and Clark, the United States controlled most of its current borders. On February 2nd, 1848, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was signed ending the Mexican-American War and annexing control of California to the United States. On that day, El Pueblo de Los Angeles had a population of 1,600. But gold had been discovered the week prior up north by James W. Marshall at Sutter's Mill in Coloma. By the end of the Civil War, 300,000 settlers had come to California to chase their fortune. Over the next half century, as a so-called manifest destiny reigned upon the land and its indigenous people, huge sections of this entirety were populated by Americans. Places like Dodge City, Laramie, Bandera, Cody, Deadwood, and Tombstone became synonymous with a wild lawlessness. Their heroes and villains immortalized in the penny press. But to start on these exercises, we are all here in By the time Wyatt Earp 
the last survivor of the gunfight at the OK Corral, passed away at his 4004 West 17th Street bungalow on January 13, 1929. The city of Los Angeles boasted a population of almost 1.25 million and four radio stations. Within the next decade, as CBS, NBC, and the Mutual Broadcasting System expanded west, 27.5 million U.S. homes turned on radio sets, and total network advertising was near a billion dollars. The record revenues incentivized the networks to greenlight new programming. As the art of producing radio drama advanced, the pages of history were used for inspiration and the Radio Western was born. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode number 89. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we explore the birth of the dramatic radio western show, specifically targeted to adult audiences. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this show on every podcast platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening theme song, is Marcel Granjani's The Colorado Trail, Opus 28, played by Miss Elizabeth Hainan and arranged by David DePeters. This song is from Miss Hainan's album, Home, Works for Solo Harp. More information can be found at elizabethhainan.com. If you're on Facebook, join our Wallbreakers Facebook group to keep in touch with news like Burning Gotham, our completely original audio drama series, that will be set in 1830s New York City and debut later this year. The teaser trailer is available in this show feed and at thewallbreakers.com. Expect trailers to begin in April. I'll have news and subscription information at the end of this month. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash the wallbreakers. It's the same old story. We bright young men who contributed the ideas to radio were urban oriented. We were operating out of Chicago, New York, and Los Angeles. Those who operated out of Los Angeles, their uh, subsidiary ethnic characters would be Japanese, like Mr. Watanabe, uh, a house servant who featured in one, some situation comedy of years ago. Those of us who operated out of New York, our ethnic characters would be uh, the stock black or the stock Irishman. And those who did their radio out of Chicago aped the manners of New York, aped the mores of New York. 
but they wouldn't think for a moment to look uh, towards the West. They were very close to it, therefore they overlooked it. I'd like to hone in on what this episode will focus on. Most of the radio shows you'll hear in tonight's program will be set in the continental United States, west of the Mississippi River. While kids' radio serials like The Lone Ranger and musical programs like The Grand Ole Opry were incredibly popular, we'll leave their stories for another time. Our program will focus on the birth of dramatic Western shows geared towards an adult audience. In order to do that, though, we'll have to mention some shows that made no distinction between being a musical or dramatic program, and others which were targeted to both children and adults. And also, this topic is too large to cover in a single episode, so we'll be doing it in the next three. You will also notice a prevalence of three themes within the golden age of radio shows featured in the coming episodes of Breaking Walls. The anthology program with a rotating weekly cast, the Western Adventure Serial, and the Western Lawman Show. Let's begin. This is the first broadcast of the Edison Hour from February 11, 1929, over NBC's Blue Network. This symbolic music, its heroic crescendo, a tribute to the tremendous accomplishments of Thomas A. Edison. By that year, NBC had three networks, color-coded red, blue, and orange. The red network was flagshipped by WEAF, and the blue by WJZ, both in New York. The Pacific Coast Orange Network was fed by a single broadcast quality line to San Francisco. CBS would follow with a Pacific connection of its own in the coming months, thanks to a deal with Don Lee's chain of stations on the West Coast. I now take pleasure in turning the microphone over to Mr. Charles Edison, son of the inventor and president of... Thomas A. Edison Industries, who will outline to you the program for tonight. Mr. Charles Edison. <clears throat> it seems fitting that this, the first of the weekly broadcasts of Thomas A. Edison Incorporated, should take place tonight. Well, this is the birthday of my father, Thomas A. Edison. And so we are going to make this program something of a birthday party for him. Edison recording artists will render a concert of his favorite music several of the songs and selections which he likes and remembers best among all the thousands he has heard during his years of musical work. In our subsequent broadcasts every Monday, we will follow the same general idea of playing the favorite music of famous persons, notables in many walks of life, industry, finance, politics, and stage, have sent us lists of their favorite musical compositions and we feel sure that you will be interested in hearing the selections which these celebrities like. I suppose you've heard that Thomas Edison Incorporated now builds radio sets. This is why we're going to broadcast. We want to do our share in putting the best possible entertainment on the air as a service to owners of Edison sets as well as to others. I can assure you that we will do all we can to make the Thomas A. Edison Incorporated Hour an event to which you will look forward. Tonight, 
father is listening in on his Edison radio way down in Fort Myers, Florida, where he is conducting his, conducting his experiments on rubber. A little later on, I'm going to ask him to say a few words to you. But first, I want to wish him a happy birthday from all his friends and workers at the Edison Industries. And now the Edison Concert Orchestra, with Carlo Peroni conducting, recalled for Mr. Edison his favorite ballet, The Dance of the Hours, taken from Ponchielli's magnificent opera, La Gioconda. 1929 was a significant year for radio. Under the guiding hand of former Secretary of Commerce Herbert Hoover, the industry had begun to take its modern shape. The Federal Radio Commission had been established after the Radio Act of 1927. Stations were now designated by class system, and the most powerful ones were given the largest broadcast range. Thanks to this booming industry, Hoover's national reputation was soaring. I cannot too strongly urge every voter to go to the polls on election day and cast his ballot in the way that his judgment and his own conscience shall dictate. Whatever the common judgment of the whole of a great people may be, that judgment will be right. After accepting the Republican presidential nomination, he soundly defeated New York's Governor Al Smith in the elections of 1928. Four months later, on the evening of this broadcast, Hoover was in Fort Myers, Florida, celebrating Thomas Edison's 82nd birthday. He was present when Edison spoke. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Thomas A. Edison speaking from Fort Myers, Florida. This has been such an eventful day with so many kind messages from so many friendly people that I find it difficult to express my heartfelt thanks I am still working hard, and I ask you to accept my efforts as a proof of my affection instead of my words. I wish I could invite all of you to have some birthday cake, but unfortunately we can't eat by radio just yet. I'll have to work on that problem. Well, good night, everybody. Thank you, and good luck. This is WJZ in New York City. The next month, Hoover was inaugurated as the 31st President of the United States. He said, Ours is a land rich in resources, stimulating in its glorious beauty, filled with millions of happy homes, blessed with comfort and opportunity. In no nation are the institutions of progress more advanced, are the fruits of accomplishment more secure. In no nation is the government more worthy of respect. No country is more beloved by its people. I have an abiding faith in our capacity, integrity, and high purpose. I have no fears for the future. It is bright with hope.
you know, I was involved in little plays when I was in, even as long ago as in eighth grade, and then I went into the, in high school, I did the elocution contest, and in college, the oratorical contest, and I played a few plays then in high school and college, both. And then I didn't do anything for quite a while. I did study law, but not very hard and not very long <laughs> at uh, both Georgetown University and Wisconsin University. And it was while I was at, the, at Wisconsin University that I did a number of plays. I wound up doing a number of plays. The first one was Devil's Disciple, Shaw's Devil's Disciple. And then in the summer of 1929, I was out of law school by that time, and they wouldn't allow me back into, uh, into the school. I wanted to switch to a uh, Bachelor of Science and, and major, in, uh, major in speech, and they wouldn't allow that, but they did let me come back and play Lelium when I wasn't even in school, <laughs> and then hired me for the summer to do four shows. And then from there, I, I went to New York, although I did, in the meantime, I played with a stock company. I did a uh, sustaining program, it was the first coast-to-coast -coast show that I ever had that was in... I would guess August of 1930. Then I started coast to coast on a program called Empire Builders for Great Northern Railroad. Great Northern Railway presents Empire Builders. The Empire Builders first came to the NBC Blue Airwaves on January 14, 1929, the day after Wyatt Earp passed away. Sponsored by the Great Northern Railroad, it was an anthology series set near the geographical rail lines the sponsor owned in Montana, Idaho, Oregon, Washington, and California. The series was named after the company founder, James J. Hill, who was nicknamed the Empire Builder. It may have been the first Western drama in radio history. While the music was lush, thanks to a full orchestra, sound effects were primitive, footsteps were often eliminated altogether, and gunshots were made by slapping a wooden lathe on a leather pillow. Tonight and every night, the Empire Builders... Each show was produced live at NBC's WJZ Studios in New York City and aired at 10.30 p.m. Eastern Time on Monday evenings. A comfortable night's sleep while your modern Pullman is being whisked smoothly up the Mississippi River Valley to the Twin Cities. Then a day spent, for the most part, no doubt, in a luxurious observation lounge car, listening to the radio, reading, or watching first the charming lake region of Minnesota, and then the wide sweep of Dakota's plain slip past the car window. Another night without a jolt or a jar as the Empire Builder glides smoothly, swiftly along on the straight stretches of steel rails, and then, the day of days for scenic wonders. First, the famous 60-mile ride along the southern border of Glacier Park and across the Continental Divide at the lowest pass in the northern USA Rockies. Then, fascinating hours of turbulent mountain streams, placid lakes, far-flung forests, high mountain peaks. You reach Spokane that evening, and the coast cities the next morning after a thrilling ride through the electrified Cascade Tunnel, the longest in the western world. What a trip. If you're planning a trip to California this winter, go this way. Via Great Northern.
On September 20, 1929, the London Stock Exchange crashed when top British investor Clarence Haytree and many of his associates were jailed for fraud and forgery. It greatly weakened optimism in overseas investments. The market was becoming severely unstable. Three weeks later, on October 24th, the U.S. market fell by 11% in a single day. Reports of fluctuating stock prices were hours late, increasing panic. Several leading Wall Street bankers, including the heads of Morgan Bank and Chase National Bank, met to find a solution. They had exchange vice president Richard Whitney purchase a large block of shares in U.S. Steel and other blue-chip stocks at a price well above the current market. It temporarily succeeded in halting the slide. However, on October 28th, more investors faced margin calls and decided to get out. The Dow recorded a record loss of 38.3 points, or 13%. The next day, Black Tuesday, October 29th, 1929, about 16 million shares were traded as the panic selling reached its peak. The Dow lost an additional 12%. The record volume of stocks traded that day stood for nearly 40 years. Seemingly overnight, the bottom had fallen out of the American economy. you break into radio? It wasn't easy in 1930. I made an audition, that's all. They were bringing Empire Builders from New York to Chicago because their main offices, Great Northern's main offices were in uh, St. Paul. And they thought New York was too far away, so they switched origination to Chicago. They had auditions, oh, I don't know how many people they auditioned, and I won the audition and went on it. Though New York City had much of early radio's most famous programming, Chicago quickly became the second center for production. By 1931, over 200 network shows were originating from the Windy City. NBC owned WMAQ, WENR, and WLS. In September of 1930, production of the Empire Builders was moved to Chicago, where Willis Cooper took over writing duties. And one of the people who played leads was Don Amici. What was Chicago radio like? Was it very active? How much... Origination uh, oh, came out of Chicago. Oh, probably, probably more network shows came out of Chicago than came out of New York at that time. I'm talking about the early 30s. Some of the biggest accounts that we had, Whiteman, for instance, came from there. The Carnation Hour came from there. Almost every soap opera came from Chicago. What was the name of the agency? Blackett, Sample, and Hummert, I believe. They had all, mm -hmm. uh, all the uh, serial accounts, and they were all out of Chicago, every one. There were times in Chicago, if I remember numbers correctly, I think I used to do something like 26 to 28 shows a week. It was the beginning of everything. All the sound effects were manual, and you had to have a man with, with any imagination that would be able to create these things, and they did them with every strange kind of 
device that you could think of. You sure. know, empire builders were a stickler for the sound of the train. So they went to this extent. They had a uh, track built, a circular track, that I would guess would have been about five feet in diameter. And the rails were exactly, the cracks in the rails were exactly as they were on the regular tracks that trains ran on. Mm -hmm. And then they had little weighted cars that they would put on these things that were controlled electrically to go at the speed so that the clicks would be exactly as a, the same as they were for a passenger train and exactly the same as they were for a freight train. And on the roof outside where they had a microphone that they could open up, they had all the whistles out there. They had the ding-dongs of the crossings that you'd go through. Mm -hmm. They would fade it in, you know, the ding-dong and fade it out as it would go. You know, the whistle would do the same thing. They had a microphone way at the top of a funnel-shaped affair for these clicks that, that came in the thing with the microphone facing down to pick these up. Tonight, Empire Builders brings you a story of railroad life, characteristic of the men and women who make the Great Northern a dependable railway. This story is presented in place of the Cascade Tunnel story, which was originally scheduled for tonight. The Great Cascade Tunnel, which was dedicated two years ago tonight, is one of the notable engineering feats of the world. Nearly eight miles in length, it is bored straight through the solid granite backbone of the Cascade Mountains in western Washington to shorten the time of Great Northern freight and passenger trains by hours. Straight as a rifle bore and lined with concrete walls two feet in thickness, this great tunnel is one of the interesting features of a trip east or west via the Empire Builder or Oriental Limited. Giant electric locomotives speed these trains through the tunnel without dust, soot, or smoke. Our plane of tonight finds the old-timer just entering the station at Blackfoot, Montana, a freight division point just east of Glacier Park. It is a crisp, snowy afternoon, and the yards outside the station are a bustle with activity. Nine air check recordings have surfaced from between December of 1930 and February of 1931. Harvey Hayes, who portrayed the old-timer in each episode, became so popular that the Great Northern Railroad began a series of vacation tours to and from Glacier National Park with the old-timer as the tour leader. The Empire Builders aired until June 22, 1931. This is Ruth Woodman, who is the author of many, many in the series of Death Valley Days. And Ruth Woodman, we'd like to offer our congratulations on winning the award for one of your programs. Well, thank you very much. I'm terribly pleased myself. Well, the one that won the award here in the Western Heritage Award is the... The name of it is the Great Lounsbury Scoop. The Great Lounsbury Scoop, and I'm sure many, many of us have seen it. In fact, yes. we've seen many reruns of Death Valley Days, and they mm -hmm. always seem to have a great audience. And you have been writing these for a long time. I've written them since we went on. I don't write them all now. I'm a story editor now, but I did used to write all of them. Well, story editor is real big responsibility. It for is. A series it is. It is. And we certainly Good think part. you're doing a great job on it. Well, thank you very much. You mentioned to me that you did them when you started on radio with Death Valley. We Day. did. 
back in Indian Territory Day. Well, <laughs> almost. <laughs> almost. <laughs> well, we yes. certainly do want you to have a wonderful time while you're here and Thank accept you. our congratulations. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mrs. Woodward. wagon trains fades away among the echoes, another true Death Valley Day story is presented for your entertainment by the Pacific Coast Borax Company, producers of that famous family of products, 20 Mule Team Borax, 20 Mule Team Borax Soap Chips, and Boraxo. Well, old ranger, what's the story about tonight? Dresser, it's a story about one of the worst bandit gangs that ever operated in the Southwest. And how the Texas Rangers finally cleaned them up, lock, stock, and barrel. Oh, a clean-up story. <laughs> well, that fits in perfectly with my announcement. For where there's any cleaning up to be done, 20 Mule Team Borax will do it quickly and easily. Death Valley Days came to NBC Red's Airwaves on September 30th, 1930 as an anthology show, which told stories about pioneer life in the Old West. All can be kept thick and span with 20 Mule Team Borax. The sponsor the Pacific Coast Borax Company, demanded the series writer have first-hand knowledge of Death Valley. The only person employed by their agency of record, McCann Erickson, with any interest in writing the show, was Ruth Cornwall Woodman. The pioneer days were in her blood. Her father, George Cornwall, had been a miner and rancher near Gunnerson, Colorado, in the late 1880s, when Wyatt Earp had lived there. Beginning in 1930, Mrs. Woodman spent several months each year in California and Nevada, collecting enough material for a season's worth of plays. She interviewed old prospectors, visited ghost towns and museums, went through newspaper files, and tracked down leads with the help of a desert expert named Washington Cahill. She wrote each script six weeks in advance to give time to verify all accounts. Death Valley Days dramatized tales of the famous and the unknown. The result was radio's first realistic Western drama. Oh, I'm there, Grimes. You get mighty tough with females, don't you? Seeing as how you're so free with my name, stranger, what might you and be? I reckon it ain't none of your business. What's the matter? You ashamed of it? No, I'm proud of it. My name's Sam Bass. Reach for the ceiling, Sheriff. <laughs> Shot him like that in that bright sunlight. He couldn't see us even. 
We're going to have a fight on our hands getting out of this town. We've done it before, so I reckon we can do it again. Come on. Hey, you head toward the alley, and I'll follow you backing up shooting as I go. Sounds all right to me. This episode told the story of outlaw Sam Bass. Bass and the Joe Collins gang held up the Union Pacific train in Big Springs, Texas, on September 18, 1877. 59 years to the day before this story aired. The gang got away with $60,000 in gold pieces. They were later arrested, but Bass got away. He hid out in his hometown, but when confronted by Deputy Sheriff A.W. Grimes, Bass killed him. When the Texas Rangers arrived, a gunfight ensued. Bass was mortally wounded, dragging himself to an oak grove out of town. A posse took him into custody. He died the next day, on June 21, 1878, his 27th birthday. The power of these stories was such that by the mid-1930s, over 30 million people were tuning in each week. In 1933, Pacific Coast Borax began offering a radio premium to listeners. By sending in a box top from 20 Mule Team Borax, they get a large, fully illustrated booklet containing four radio plays in short story format. All right, you, where is he? Is he here in Rhyolite? No? Then show me where. Hey, Smitty, where you going? Wherever this critter takes me. You mean I'm going to look up Oli. Not all stories were so serious either. In The Borough Who Had No Name, from June 17, 1938, a white donkey helped save the life of his prospector owner, who fell from a ridge and broke his leg. Well, it was just about sundown of the third day out that they found him. Laying unconscious at the bottom of a narrow canyon. Ole. Thank the Lord he's still alive. Ole. Huh? It's me, Smitty. Smitty? I I come as fast as I could, Ole. He brung you here, did he? Straight as a die. Good boy. He he turned up in Rhyolite... Just like I told him to. I, I know right off that something was wrong. What happened, Ole? Where you hurt? My leg. Broke? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can see. I was following some float up the mountain. It was getting dark. Like a fool, I didn't want to stop. And somehow or other, I lost my foot and, and fell. Clear down here? Yeah. Oh... oh. No wonder you wasn't killed outright. Uh, shows how tough I am. <laughs> Gosh. I knowed I could never make it back to town, even if I had a burrow to ride. What happened to you, burrs? Uh, they went off. I don't know where. All but this fellow. <laughs> he, he stuck by me until I, I sent him away to get help. I figured I had enough water to last me till you could get here. If you'd come. Why, Olia, of course I'd come. I I didn't know. I was sort of afraid. You 
Think I'd let you die out here alone? Alone with my samples. Huh? <laughs> They're around here, Summers. Samples? Of war. I run across something mighty good, Smitty. Here. Here's one of them. Take a good look at it. Let me see. High grade. I'll say. Real picture rock. I'll bet she assays a trip to Europe for ton. If we wanted to go to Europe, which we don't. We? You and me. Oh, but... But, Ole, I... We're still partners, ain't we, Smitty? Ole, I... I don't deserve it after the way I treated you. Heck, you just saved my life, didn't you? It wasn't me. It was the White Borough. The White Borough. Ole. Yeah? Have you named him yet? No. Then let's give him a name now. Smitty. After all, he's earned it. You know what it'll mean, don't you? That he'll be ours for the rest of his life. Yes. All right. I'm willing. You have been listening to another true story of Death Valley Days, brought to you by the Pacific Coast Borax Company. Producers of 20 Mule Team Borax for household use, 20 Mule Team Borax soap chips in the big... Death Valley Days underwent transformations in the 1940s, eventually being called The Sheriff. The radio series aired until September of 1951. It then moved to television under its original moniker, where Ronald Reagan eventually portrayed the old Ranger narrator until he was elected the governor of California. red and white and black package is the perfect cleanser for iceboxes. For her Why? indelible contributions to the Old West's history, Ruth Woodman was honored in 1961 at the first annual Western Heritage Awards by the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum in Oklahoma City. She was interviewed there by KOCO's Ida B., Ida Blackburn. Although Mrs. Woodman passed away in 1970, Death Valley Days remained on TV in syndication until 1975. The show spent four and a half decades on the air. Today, the Pacific Coast Borax Company is owned by Rio Tinto Minerals and called Rio Tinto Borax. It continues to supply nearly half the world's borates. It operates the Rio Tinto Borax Mine in Bora. California. John McBride, Milton C. Herman, Frank Butler, and Jeffrey Bryant. This is George Hicks speaking. This is the National Broadcasting Company. KFI Los Angeles. Cadavera Quivery. I'm the host of an all-new horror series named after the place where I live, The Cellar. <laughs> In each episode, I open my great big book and select a story that's certain to chill you. <laughs> so watch for The Cellar, coming soon from the creator of Pulpery Theater, Pete Lutz. In the meantime, don't take candy from stranglers. <laughs> Launching in March on the all-new 
mutualaudionetwork.com. My friends, I want to talk for a few minutes with the people of the United States about banking. To talk with the comparatively few who understand the mechanics of banking, but more particularly with the overwhelming majority of you who use banks for the making of deposits and the drawing of checks. I want to tell you what has been done in the last few days and why it was done and what the next steps are going to be. I recognize that the many proclamations from state capitals and from Washington, the legislation, the treasury regulations and so forth, couched for the most part in banking and legal terms, ought to be explained for the benefit of the average citizen. I owe this in particular because of the fortitude and the good temper with which everybody has accepted the inconvenience and the hardships of the banking holiday. And I know that when you understand what we in Washington have been about, I shall... As Franklin Delano Roosevelt defeated Herbert Hoover in the 1932 presidential election, America was in the throes of the Great Depression. First of all, let me state the simple fact that when you deposit money in a bank, the bank does not put the money into a safe deposit vault. But the radio industry was still expanding. The success of Death Valley Days led to numerous local and syndicated productions. Covered Wagon Days aired on KGW in Portland and followed a fictional group of pioneers who settled in the Oregon Territory in 1850 and experienced the hardships of the period. Historical Southern California on KHJ covered the gold rush, as well as the early battles between settlers and Mexicans. Reminiscences of the Old West on KOA in Denver utilized carefully researched history as the basis for dramatic sketches. It proved so popular that students preferred it to their textbooks. And winning the West, the 1933 brainchild of NBC's Wilbur Hall was sponsored by the Occidental Life Insurance Company of California. It originated from San Francisco and aired for three years. But perhaps none were more successful than Frontier Fighters. Produced in syndication by the Hollywood-based Radio Transcription Company of America, each episode focused on a significant historical figure or event in U.S. frontier history. Listeners heard about Trapper Joe Meeks, Buffalo Bill Cody, Mormon leader Brigham Young, Custer's Last Stand, the Donner Party, the Fall of the Alamo, and on Lewis and Clark. Although many stations aired the program between 5 and 6 p.m., normally a time slot geared for a juvenile audience, the stories were often gruesome. Frontier Fighters. Valiant guardians of trails, old and new, which stand today as a great nation's frontiers of destiny. Shortly after the United States in the interest of peace and progress annexed New Mexico, renegades, outlaws, and drink-crazed Indians staged a rebellion against the sovereign federal authority. In the summer of 1847, the first American governor, Charles Bent, appointed by General Kearney, was at Taos, home on a short visit. He refused a military escort because he believed himself immune from any attack because he had treated all fairly. With him were a few servants, 
His children, a girl aged five, and a boy, Alfredo, aged ten, and Josefa, the wife of Kit Carson. At sundown of the day of the massacre, a neighbor said to Governor Bent, Governor, there are times even in the life of a soldier when discretion is the better part of valor. What are you going to do if a mob surrounds you? I'm not afraid of any mob. I've treated all with fairness and honesty. That's my record, and I stand on it. There have been ugly rumors for the past week. I'm moving my family out of Taos. The massacre at Taos dramatized a January 1847 New Mexican revolt, led by Pablo Montoya and Tomas Romero during the Mexican-American War. in these troubled times to refuse an armed escort to Taos. It's inconceivable to me that anyone in New Mexico, Mexican, Indian, or renegade, could wish harm to me or mine. Well, God be with you all. As for myself, I'm leaving and taking my family... Romero led a Native American force to the house of Governor Charles Bent, where they broke down the door, shot Bent with arrows, and scalped him in front of his family. Of Indians and renegades. Outlaws have torn down the flag. They are going to storm the house. Impossible. They wouldn't dare. Oh, we must flee for our lives, John. Oh, Juan, rouse the children and Senora Carson. Get them all in the living. Si, si, senor, at once. Oh, we must do something at once, child. We'll all be murdered in our beds. Just the minute I'm dressed, I will do something. I'll go out there and face that mob down. That's how a gentleman always deals with cowardly Indians and horse thieves. Next, they killed several government officials, along with those seen as part of the territorial government. The following day, 500 Hispanos and Puebolans attacked and laid siege to Simeon Turley's mill in Arroyo Hondo. Charles Otobis, an employee at the mill, saw the men coming. He rode to Santa Fe for the occupying U.S. forces. The U.S. military moved quickly. The Pueblos and Mexicans took cover in a nearby Taos church. The military used a cannon assault to breach the stronghold. Hand-to-hand combat ensued. In the end, the Mexicans and Pueblos were defeated. And in the aftermath, at least 28 men were hanged by the U.S. government. I only made it clear to everybody that there ain't no room for a bad man in any part of this land over which flies the stars and stripes. God bless you, Senor Kid. Looking out with eyes other than the two in my head, I see a Santa Fe trail that's open the year round. From one season to the other, one year to the other. Heroes of the West, soldier and churchman alike, long will they live in our memories. Kit Carson and Bishop Lamy, truly great frontier fighters. Although the Radio Transcription Company of America went out of business in 1938, many of its recordings were obtained by Bruce Ells Productions in the early 1940s. Frontier Fighters remained on the air in syndication into 1943.
Yeah, about well, this time they decided for the man who brings over the gadget that sets up at the sustaining broadcast, you must pay $25 to each night he comes over. And the owner of the penny sixty place said, hey, they should pay us to have you. I said, Mr. Belak, they insist you pay. Otherwise, I got that this lifeline, I'm dead. And he said, I won't pay it. So he said, no, I said, Rudy, I think NBC will come to the wire and he'll deliver the penny sixty club for nothing, which, of course, they were happy to do. But I had to sign with NBC. So I signed with NBC. That was the beginning of the next the Fleischman R and pictures and all the other things that followed. At that time, you boys probably don't remember this, NBC had what they called the Artist Service Bureau, which was managing personalities for radio. They had Lopez, and they asked me to sign not only an NBC contract to only broadcast with NBC, but also to be managed by the Artist Service Bureau, which they managed me about a year. And then the government stepped in, as they did with Music Corporation of America and some of the other corporations, said, look, you may not handle talent and present it, too. You can either do one or the other. And that was the situation there, so NBC no longer managed me after about 1931. But from 1929 to 31, I was managed by the Outer Service Bureau, and the fellow Ed Shewing was delegated to handle me and Lopez. He may have had somebody else, I would get some operatic stars too. And then the man named George Engel, E-N-G-E-L, was in charge of NBC Outer Service Bureau, and he committed suicide. I'll never forget, in 1932, I went to the coast to see my wife Faye Webb. I was in George White Scandals, Pennsylvania Grill, playing dances in the evening after the show. And doing my flights now from New York and free sustaining broadcast from the Pennsylvania Grill. And I came out and I had my wife stay with them on the coast three or four months and they're getting a little unhappy and jittery, so I went out to see her for two weeks and somebody else pinched it for me in the broadcast and so on. And I came back, I bought a home on the coast for $80,000, came back to the coast. I said to George Engel, this man who's in charge of the artist of the of NBC, I said, Do you ever think that broadcasting will be a anything at all on the coast that I just bought a home there. He said, Rudy, there will never be any broadcasting from California. <laughs> Madison Avenue wants to control of it right in the walk. There will never be any big broadcasting from California. Period. <laughs> A second coast-to-coast NBC broadcast connection was established from New York. While the first line was brought to San Francisco in the late 1920s, this one went to Los Angeles. The circuit was able to reverse its direction in under 15 seconds, allowing Los Angeles, with its easy access to Hollywood stars, to feed broadcast quality sound to the East Coast. Overnight, Chicago and San Francisco became tertiary broadcast cities. Much like during the California Gold Rush of 1849, the radio industry's talent rapidly migrated west. Rudy Valley, then arguably the biggest name in music and radio, was one of them. So was character actor Hans Conried. I primarily was a California actor. Yeah euphemistically and glamorously called Hollywood. <laughs> uh, indeed, there were uh, the New York actors, the, the shows that came out of New York in the golden days of radio were primarily of a documentary sense and very often a more literate sense and very often a more substantial sense. Chicago was primarily a soap opera production center uh, because the, uh, the slaughterhouses in those days were in Chicago where the soap was being manufactured of animal fats. That's and interesting. That's exactly the reason for it. And the sponsors and the sponsors' wives who decided upon the artistic merits of any artist uh, were in close proximity to the production. And Hollywood then, you see, uh, when I began in 35, 
uh, just at that point, San Francisco was the big town on the coast. And uh, up to that point, uh, motion picture artists, motion picture performers were forbidden to appear on radio for fear they would lose their, their glamour. And since tickets cost 35 cents apiece to go to the motion pictures, uh, there was a, a real problem until someone's nephew, I suppose, in one studio decided, let our actor, our motion movie star, step into your living room. And the phrase was born, and suddenly there became a vogue for motion picture actors. Now, the movie star was named and starred. He was the great glamorous attraction. And that's how Hollywood expanded into the glamour show. But those surrounding him were the workaday uh, able actors who played part after part after part. On December 7th, 1935, NBC Hollywood opened its studios with a gala event. Al Josen was the MC. I'm going to get this show underway. And just to give you an idea what a terrific show we're going to have tonight, who do you think I'm going to call on first? One of the greatest singers of popular songs that ever lived. You know who I mean. Bing Crosby. Boy, and is he dressed up in evening clothes. <laughs> yes. He looks like a plumber. Well, we got to laugh. I'm glad you came this way. If you'd want a full dress suit, you'd look like everybody else at least. You look different. Right this way, being your boy, Bad and but I. different. Huh? Bad but different. Oh, no, you look cute. <laughs> ah, that Encino life, you know. <laughs> out on the old ranch. Are you made up to work with your horses in the morning, or what is it, Bing? Right, I'm going out in the morning. All right. Bing just came over here, I want to tell you folks, from the Paramount Studios, and he's going to sing Treasure Island. And it'll be accompanied by Victor Young and the orchestra. All right, Bing, Treasure Island. <laughs> The next year, William Paley paid $1.25 million for Los Angeles' KNX station. CBS then expanded into their Columbia Square complex as NBC expanded into a Hollywood radio city. It was officially the golden age of radio. If I had learned anything about programming and personalities on the air by the 1930s, I think it was that you had to pull things in out of the blue sky. In other words, to hope and expect to find something somewhere without having it introduced to you formally. Hollywood, California, Monday, May 31st. The Lux Radio Theater presents Frederick March and Gene Arthur in The Plainsman. Lux presents Hollywood. The makers of Lux Toilet Soap appreciate the enthusiasm you have shown for this fine beauty care used by nine out of ten Hollywood stars. It was really extraordinary. Cecil B. DeMille was the host, and uh, William Keeley, and, and different people, you know, I mean, very distinguished directors. And the fact that it, all of the money went to the Actors Fund was very impressive. Besides, I suppose it had one of the biggest listening audiences of all time. And these dramas were rehearsed like plays. You know, you rehearsed a full week. Lux Toilet Soap is Snow White, Pure Miles. One of CBS's first large shows to head west was the Lux Radio Theater. 
They officially moved with the June 1st, 1936 broadcast and also hired a new host, Cecil B. DeMille. The Hollywood director was paid $2,000 per week to emcee the series. Lux set up shop at the Music Box Theater on Hollywood Boulevard just off Vine Street. It was arguably the most important show on the air. In 1943, TuneIn Magazine noted that when Cecil B. DeMille opens each broadcast, it almost sounded like, this is God speaking from heaven. Film shooting schedules were rearranged to accommodate Lux's need for high-budget stars. And its ratings were never lower than a 20 until the inception of television. Greetings from Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. Last week, I announced that Gary Cooper would be with us tonight to star with Gene Arthur and the Plainsman. For two weeks, Gary's been working in the water, making scenes for souls at sea. The result is a severe cold and a high temperature. But ignoring both, Gary has insisted on rehearsing. He protested to his physician that we have a show to put on. And that, uh, sick or not, his place tonight is here at the microphone. It wasn't until late last night that we succeeded in talking him out of it. He finally gave in, and at this moment, his home and in bed. I know you all join me in wishing him a speedy recovery. Stepping into the breach with a graciousness characteristic of a true friend and great actor is Frederick March. The part of Wild Bill Hickok is rather close to my heart. I entrust it to Mr. March with gratitude and the complete assurance that in his hands it awaits only new honors. And now a word about our story. On the 9th of April, in 1865, Generals Lee and Grant met at a farmhouse in Appomattox Courthouse, Virginia, and with quiet simplicity, signed a document whose words had been written in the lifeblood of nearly 500,000 Americans. The war between the states was over. The signatures were scarcely dry when the eyes of the nation turned westward and saw beyond the Mississippi a fabulous empire, yet untamed, a land of thundering bison herds and savage Indians. Into this territory poured the legions of Americans whose faith and fortunes had been scattered by the war and the hordes of immigrants who flooded from Europe to stake their homes on the sweeping plains. Some found peace, some found riches, and some found death at the point of uh, six shooters and scalping knives. For there was no Sunday west of Junction City, no law west of Hayes City, and no God west of Carson City. Out of this background was born the plainsman, the first of a series of pictures based on the magnificent pageant of American history and its unsung heroes. A series which I am continuing with the story of Jean Lafitte, the buccaneer. Frederick March will again star for me in the role of this amazing pirate. Wild Bill Hickok was not an outlaw. He was a frontier marshal, gentleman, and the keenest shot in the West. And always in his shadow was the equally compelling character of Calamity Jane. My good fortune in securing Gene Arthur as Calamity in the screen version is repeated tonight. No star is better equipped by nature and ability for this colorful role. Also from the original cast comes Porter Hall, resuming the role of Jack McCall. Mr. Hall's current Paramount film is Make Way for Tomorrow. Joan Fontaine, a young actress rapidly rising at RKO Studios, plays Louisa Cody. And Paul Harvey is heard as Yellowhand. And now... We set our course along the trail of the pioneers to the west. The applause of our Hollywood audience greets the rising of the curtain as the Lux Radio Theater presents The Plainsman, starring Frederick March and Gene Arthur, with Porter Hall, Joan Fontaine, 
and Paul Harvey. Among the soldiers who turned their faces homeward at the close of the war between the states was a man known to his friends and to his enemies as Wild Bill Hickok. His face was not turned toward the rolling pastures of the east, but toward the rugged hills and sweeping plains of the unborn west. At St. Louis, on the banks of the Mississippi, a riverboat is ready to leave for the May 31st, 1937 broadcast of The Plainsman was originally directed on film by DeMille himself and told a highly fictionalized account of the life and time of Wild Bill Hickok. It starred Gene Arthur as Calamity Jane and Frederick March, pinch hitting for Gary Cooper as Wild Bill. Joan Fontaine played the part of Louisa Cody. Well, might be Bill. You ain't Buffalo Bill, are you? No. Well, I'll tell you. If I wasn't myself, I'd just as soon be Buffalo Bill, because he's a great scout, son. Well, we were indicating earlier that they did pay well. They, they were looking for stars in, in many of these shows, weren't well, they? Well, what they were actually was an abridged version of the entire movie. Mm-hmm. And if you lived in the country where the, this is before drive-in theaters, I suppose, you couldn't get to the movie house. So you would listen to it and you could discuss this rather intelligently with people who had seen the film. You would have the hour or an hour and a half, maybe. I think it was an hour, wasn't it, Ed? Was a, yeah, it's a full hour. Mm, full yeah. hour. Mm-hmm. Were the film producers at all concerned about, let's say, a dramatization of uh, Rebecca on radio before it had filled out its run in the movie theaters? I don't think they would have allowed no, that. They no, they wouldn't have allowed that. No, Usually, they, it was held back then. Not it was long. a couple of years, Sometimes though. it was current with the showing in the movie houses. They publicized it. Well, it was never a competition then as such, I would, I would oh, assume. Oh, it's... Uh, Might have been a uh, teaser. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. that's it. You can't do it in an hour, what you can do in a film. There's no two ways about it. You know what an Indian will do to you, but you never know what a woman will do. Well, if you don't like her, then what do you carry your picture around for? Well, you see, it's the best picture of me I ever had made. And if I cut her out, I'd cut off part of my chin. Get off that box, son. All right, you men. Throw those boxes on the boat and be quick about it. Yes, sir, Mr. Latimer. Yes, sir. Come on, come on. Put your shoulders Hey, you better move out of the way, son. Seems to be a powerful, heavy shipment of farming tools going out to Hayes City. Says John Latimer on the foxes. Want to see me hit the O and John? Yeah. There. Want to try your luck, mister? <laughs> I need a mighty good target. Say, an engine or a hold-up man. But if you... What you looking at, mister? I'm looking at a right good fighting man over there who's been fool enough to get himself married. Lend me a slingshot, Sonny. Now you watch. Oh, who did that? Jiggers, you hit him in the pants. Come on. Oh, now, wait a minute, young man. Who did that? Who hit me with that slingshot? Well, uh, I reckon I did. Bill, why you long-legged, fagacious old gallinipper? What are you doing here? Uh, Just a minute, Bill. Here's a fellow who'd like to be introduced to you. Boy, you wouldn't know him in those tin horn garments he's wearing. But here's the best scout west of the Mississippi. Shake hands with Buffalo Bill Cody. Buffalo Bill? Howdy, youngster. You mustered out yet, Bill? Yesterday. Well, you're not losing any time going up the big muddy. How long have you been out? Oh, about three months. Well, I see your wife hasn't cut your hair yet. I don't quite know what you mean, Bill. You heard what happened to Samson after that Delilah woman opened up her barber shop. 
Has she tamed you yet? Now, look here, Bill. That ain't fair. She's different. You're different. All is gone, get aboard. Will, we better hurry. They're calling all aboard. Wait a minute, Louisa. I want you to meet the best friend a man ever had, Mr. Bill Hickok. Bill, this is my wife. Oh, I'm so glad to meet any friend of Will. How'd you do, ma'am? Will, they'll be going. Come on, then. Is, she, uh, is uh, Miss Cody going west with you? That's a crazy question, Bill. Of course she is. Well, ma'am, it's, it's a good country for men and mules, but it's hard on women and fine horses. He was born, James Butler Hickok, on May 27, 1837, in LaSalle County, Illinois. Drawn to a ruffian lifestyle, he left home at 18 and headed west, working as a stagecoach driver and later as a lawman in the frontier territories of Kansas and Nebraska. I'd like to meet him. He's a fella to have as a friend. <laughs> Evening, Mr. Hickok. I'm Jack McCall. <laughs> I'll take a little death to be traveling with you. Hicks fought and spied for the Union Army during the Civil War and gained publicity as a scout, marksman, actor, and professional gambler. Over the course of his life, he was involved in several notable shootouts. Well, it's, it's on fire. <laughs> good evening, Mr. Hickok. Oh, good evening, Miss Cody. Do you think we'll reach Leavenworth tomorrow? Well, ma'am, of all the variable things in creation, the most uncertain are the actions of a jury, the state of a woman's mind, and the condition of the Missouri River. Roughly 26 million people heard the broadcast. In the end, a dramatized version of Hickok's death at the hands of Jack McCall is heard as Calamity Jane professes her love and gives Bill one last kiss. And now a little crossfire from our leading man and lady, Frederick March and Jean Arthur. Jean, now that you've done the plainsman on both the screen and the air, which did you enjoy more? Uh, well, that's not so easy to answer, Mr. DeMille. Making the picture was... Considerably more exciting, I suppose, since you had me driving a stagecoach and captured by real Cheyenne Indians and practically living the same thrilling incidents that Calamity Jane experienced. Yes, but, Jean, there's, there's an intimacy about radio that you can't find anywhere else. For instance, I'm told that Gary Cooper is listening in tonight. And I only hope that as Wild Bill Hickok, I was one half the man on the air that he was in the picture. I also hope that Gary is as quick in his recovery as Hickok as he was on the trigger. Yeah, so say we all. My thanks and good night to you both. Good night, Good Steve. night. Thank you, Frederick March and Gene Arthur. This is your announcer, ladies and gentlemen. Cecil B. DeMille would continue to host the program until January of 1945, when he became at odds with the American Federation of Radio Actors because of a ballot proposal called Proposition 12. It threatened unions by making California a right-to-work state. If passed, it would have allowed any non-union member to work in radio. The American Federation of Radio Artists choose to take one dollar from every union member to fight the bill. DeMille refused to pay. One of the most dramatic events in modern history, the Russian Revolution, becomes the background of next Monday night's play in the Lux Radio Theater when we present that amazing story of international spies, British Agent, suggested by Bruce Lockhart's best-selling book, Screened by Warner Brothers. This exciting and romantic play brings two of your favorite stars back to our microphone. Errol Flynn and Francis Farmer. 
the argument dragged through late 1944. He was sympathetic to the Union ideals, but distrusted Afra's power. He insisted it was an issue of freedom. This is Cecil B. DeMille saying goodnight to you from Hollywood. Eventually, the courts ruled against DeMille, and he left the show on January 22, 1945. It was later said that DeMille was a man who wouldn't have taken a million dollars for his Lux job, but he gave it up for a dollar. Columbia Broadcasting System. on the Red Horse Ranch. Yes. <laughs> In 1935, a new syndicated radio serial called Life on the Red Horse Ranch took to the airwaves. The series was the brainchild of Arthur B. Church, who owned KMBC. Church was an early radio enthusiast. In 1914, he helped create 9WU, an experimental wireless ham station at Graceland College in Lamoni, Iowa. By 1926, he was a member of the National Association of Broadcasters. While working closely with the organization, he was able to do committee work with radio pioneer David Sarnoff, then general manager of RCA, with station KLDS. The following year, KLDS became the Midland Broadcasting Company and changed its call letters to KMBC. KMBC joined CBS in 1928 as the 16th affiliated station. Life on Red Horse Ranch may be the most widely remembered radio work for the eight-piece western musical act, the Texas Rangers. Several individual members of the group were working as writers, actors, and musicians for KMBC in early 1927. They merged as a group and found themselves on a sustaining CBS program in 1932. Life on Red Horse Ranch was a mix of song and dramatic storyline with the Rangers playing both roles. We are at the Red Horse Ranch. Alabama, foreman of the ranch, Texans, Arizona, and all the rest of the outfit are down in the bunkhouse, resting from a hard day in the saddle. Sam Carter, owner of the Red Horse, has announced that his daughter, Rose Carter, will soon be home from school in the east, and the boys are all mighty happy. As we join them, they're singing one of their favorite songs of the open range. From the kettle shoot, press along to the big corral. He ought to be branded on his new press along to the big corral. Press along, press along, cowboy, press along, press along with a cowboy yell. Press along, press along with a noise, big noise, press along to the big corral. Press along, press along, cowboy, press along, press along with a cowboy yell. Press along, press along with a noise, big noise, press along to the big corral. <laughs> Boys, I don't recollect ever hearing you sing that song better. What's got into you, anyhow? I reckon you know that already, Alabama. It's going to be like old times here on the Red Horse Ranch before long. <laughs> sure, I know, Bob, and so do all the boys. 
It seems like the sun went plumb out when Rose went off back east to school. And now she's coming home. Yes, sir. Well, when's she getting back, Alabama? Sometime at the end of this week, I hear. Well, she couldn't get here any too quick to suit me. <laughs> I hope you don't count on shining up to Rose when she gets back, Arizona. <laughs> oh, no, it ain't that. I just figure her dad'll get off his high horse once she's around again. Don't seem like we do nothing right for him around this ranch no more. He sure laid it into me and Tenderfoot this evening when we come in. Was Dad riding you again, Tenderfoot? Uh, well, yes. He seemed to think Arizona and I should have finished up fixing that south fence today. Yeah. It sure don't do you no good to run foul of Dad Carter these days. Well, Dad Carter's all right, Arizona. Like as not, if it had been some other rancher, we'd all be riding the chuck lines right now. <laughs> yeah. Dad sure had a heap of trouble since Rose left. Lost half his herd last winter... Why, we won't be able to round up enough cattle to mow and pay the interest on his loan on this ranch. Oh, we ain't got nothing to holler about. Sight of Dad Carter, believe me. <laughs> sure we ain't. But, but that ain't no talk for right now, anyhow, with Rose coming home. Uh, let's have some more music in you, sure. cowpokes. What'll it be, Alabama? Well, if that jug of yours is empty, you might tutor something on that. Uh, get your fiddle, Tenderfoot. Montana, yep. land into that squeeze box, boy. And Arizona, yeah. grab your banjo and forget your yeah. troubles. Let's go yeah. now. During the same period, the Rangers entered the recording studio. They laid down eight tracks in the summer of 1934, the most famous of which was Cattle Call, a tune penned by Tex Owens, who was given the moniker of the original Texas Ranger. The whole outfit came to the attention of the J. Sterling Getchell Advertising Agency. On March 30, 1935, the agency signed a contract with KMBC to use the series for their client, Sacconi Vacuum. The KMBC staff had two weeks to deliver the first 26 episodes. The entire series was recorded in a four-day period. Each actor was paid $50 per day and recorded as many as 16 episodes in a single sitting. After four days' work, each actor banked what would be today $3,674. I tell you, Arizona, if you worked half as hard as you play that fool banjo, the big boss wouldn't have no trouble with you. <laughs> oh, shucks. The only place I saw you today was down there in the corral talking to that bronc of yours. Yeah. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? Miss Rose will be plenty jealous of that horse when she gets back, the way you've been making up to it. <laughs> oh, hang it, Bob. Can't a fella train a horse without getting joked about it all the time? Well, if you call training a horse to sit on the fence and talk to it like you would a two-year-old kid, I'll trade my jackknife for a billy goat. <laughs> well, I'm going to show you boys something one of these days. Alabama, well, I told you when you brought that cayuse in off the range... And I'm saying it again. What? No man's ever going to ride him. I can tell a wild horse when I see one. I'll ride him when the time comes. And you can place your bets where you like. All I ask you is that you keep your hands off of him. You don't need to tell me that. I don't hanker for that broke hand me no souvenirs. <laughs> <laughs> Something tickling your ribs, Tex? <laughs> well, I just thought if you'd tell us when you was going to ride that roan, we could send Tenderfoot to town to get some more liniment. <laughs> well, you boys can do your laughing now, but someday you're going to find out. Better sing something for Alabama Tech, just to calm him down a little. Why, oh. sure. Well, I'll see just what I can do for him. Hey, shut that door. Was you raised in a barn? Uh, 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 good evening, Mr. Carter. Well, Arizona, I figured you and Tenderfoot being your bumps for this time. 
You think getting up bright and early to fix that fence? Uh, uh, come on in, Mr. Carter, and sit with us for a spell. We were just having a little music before hitting the hay. Was that you were strumming on the guitar, Tex? <laughs> Might as well admit it, Mr. Carter. We're all feeling mighty good. Hearing that Rose is going to be back with us on the Red Horse Ranch? Yes, Rose is coming home to her old dad. I don't know how I ever got along without her. Go ahead, Tex. That's what I come down here for, to hear you boys sing. All right, I'll sing this one for you. This is audio from the first episode of the series. Life on Red Horse Ranch. Follow the exploits of the ranch hands, voiced by the Texas Rangers, Sam Carter, owner, and his daughter Rose. The ranch hands double as detectives. They investigated mysterious gunshots, chased down cattle rustlers, raced horses, and all the while sung songs. Of the 15 minutes of airtime, only five went to story development. The rest went to music and commercial spots. Eventually, internal interest in continuing the show with KNBC waned and its recordings were put into storage. Meanwhile, the Texas Rangers continued on radio until 1950, appearing on Gene Autry's Melody Ranch and Hawk Larrabee. But this series provides great insight to production qualities at a small network-affiliated station in the 1930s. All but one of the recorded episodes are available for listening today. Well, here comes Buck Jones now. Sure enough. Sure. Hello, boys. Well, hello, Buck. Glad to see you. Sure glad to see you, too, Buck. You know Sheriff Andy Devine. Why, sure. We made a picture together now, quite a while ago. Remember that, Andy? Yep, and we had a lot of fun making it, didn't we? You know, Buck, I made a couple of pictures myself lately for Paramount. The big broadcast and college holiday. Did you see him? I don't know. Were they Western? <laughs> no, I stepped out of character for those. <laughs> Tell me, Buck, when you called me on the phone, were you positive you saw Cactus Face Elmer, the outlaw? No, I wasn't. What did you call me for? Oh, I just wanted to get on your program. Hmm. Well, I need a fellow like you to help me catch that varmint. Let's go into the bar and have a drink. Find out where the bar is, Andy. I can't speak the language here. Oh, that's right. I'll find out. Oye, portero, donde está el café? Right down the hall. First door to your right. I said the bar room. Oh, second door to your right. <laughs> Buck Jones was born Charles Frederick Gebert in Vincennes, Indiana, on December 12, 1891. At 16, he joined the United States Army as a cavalryman, where he was deployed to the Philippines in October of 1907. He served in combat and was wounded during the Moro Rebellion. Upon his return to the U.S., he was honorably discharged, but he later re-enlisted in order to learn to fly airplanes, 
After a second honorable discharge, Jones began working as a cowboy on the 101 Ranch near Bliss, Oklahoma. While attending equestrian shows, he met a lovely professional horse rider, Dale Osborne. Both had very little money, so in 1915, when Jones asked Dale to marry him, the producers of a Wild West show in which they were working offered to perform the service in public, which they accepted. With Dale pregnant, they moved to Los Angeles. Jones gave up the cowboy life to work in the film industry. Eventually, he worked his way up to $150 per week for the Fox Film Corporation. Company owner William Fox decided to use him as a backup to Tom Mix. This led to his first starring role, The Last Straw, released in 1920. By 1928, Jones had more than 160 films to his credit. And as one of the top cowboy film stars of the day, he formed his own production company and organized a touring Wild West show, with himself as a featured attraction. As the Great Depression took hold and talking pictures were introduced, his rich baritone voice helped him remain a star. Jones guest appeared on radio multiple times, including on the January 17, 1937 episode of the Jack Benny program. Jack Benny's sponsor at the time was General Foods, the makers of Jell-O. General Foods signed Jones to a contract immediately after the Benny performance, and Hoofbeats was born. The February 5, 1937 issue of Variety magazine mentioned that production was about to begin. By 1937, acetate transcription discs had been invented, and an experienced crew at Recordings Inc. in Hollywood was available to work on the series. When the syndicated series was sold to a station, it was boxed, labeled, and sent with a set of cue sheets for announcers. At the end of February, Hoofbeats was on the air. The makers of Grape Nuts Flakes, America's most famous cereal in flake form, present America's most famous cowboy, Buck Jones. Today we bring you the second episode of Hoofbeats, the exciting drama of the Western Plains, and I'm mighty sure that you'll enjoy it a lot. You'll enjoy Grape Nuts Flakes, too, a lot, folks, or I miss my guess. Why, you don't know what real chow is till you've had The show's main storyline centered around Buck's quest for revenge against the cattle-rustling murderous Gore and the Dagger Hilt gang who killed Buck's father and two brothers. The post-Grape Nuts Flakes commercials were full of premiums. To join the Buck Jones Club, listeners could send in one Grape Nuts Flakes box top, receiving a membership card, a Buck Jones pin, and a booklet of prizes. By sending in 18 box tops, you get a Buck Jones lariat. With 24, you get a Buck Jones shirt. 72 will get you a Buck Jones hat. And 103 box tops will get you a pair of authentic Buck Jones chaps. Traveling through the wild hideout country of Colorado, Buck falls in with the Dagger Hills outfit, a surly, hard-bitten crew who are driving a herd of exhausted cattle to some questionable market north. 
Buck reveals to Red River, the one friendly member of the crew, that he's on the trail of three men. One left-handed with crooked eyes. One with a mark like a dagger hilt on his shoulder. And a third man whom he doesn't describe. For Red River, knowing their trail boss, Gore, is the man with the dagger hilt mark, breaks in with a startled cry. The next day, Buck, riding his horse, Silver, pulls up near Red River, who is gazing intently toward the front of the herd. Whoa, Silver. Whoa, steady boy. Sure is hot, Red River. Yeah, too hot. We're in for a storm, Buck. I reckon you're right. So the sky don't show it. Not a cloud in sight. Now, there's a sure sign. Just watch that old mothy horned steer leading the herd up there. I've been watching him. Usually he keeps them long horns of his pointed due north. He's been buckling all morning in and out on the frost. Just a longhorn to smell a storm. And to break his fool neck running from it. You'll make a mess if they stampede it in these washes here. Uh-huh. Well, they're pretty tired. Might be old Mossy Horn will think twice before starting to run. A longhorn don't think when he's scared, Buck. But I wish a stampede was all I had to worry about. Meaning about everything not being right with this outfit? Yeah, and what you told me, Buck. Oh, I talk too much. Reckon I was lonesome. Uh, it wasn't that. You had an object. What makes you think so? Well, men don't tell things like that just to hear themselves talk. Not your sort, Buck. And it's easy to guess why you joined up with us. Why, Red River? Well, seeing that's the same mark that's on one of the men you're looking for. I've been wondering. You told me, besides this man, you're trailing two more. The left-handed hombre and the third. But you didn't describe him. I can't describe him. Yet you got the earmarks of the other two. That's something I can't lift the mask from. I don't dare think how I got these three bullets here. I'll never quit remembering what they're for. The third man. I don't know what he's like. Hey! Here comes Gore. Man. Uh, whoa, whoa there. Here, you men. Go on, get back to the wagon. Grab a bite to eat as we go along. We ain't stopping at noon. Go to storm. There's a box canyon ten miles off. Are you crazy, Gore? No. Get a snack under your belt. You too, Buck. Then maybe you'll do more work and less talk. I'll regulate my own talking, Gore. You know, it beats all. How two hombres have never met you yet that he can find so much to say to each other. After Hoofbeats wrapped up its syndicated run in 1940, Jones starred in the film serial White Eagle. His last film, Dawn on the Great Divide, wrapped up production in November of 1942. On the evening of November 27, 1942, Buck Jones was at the Coconut Grove nightclub in Boston, Massachusetts, at a party thrown in his honor by his agent, Scott Dunlap. At 10.15 in the dark, intimate melody lounge downstairs, Goody Goodell, a young pianist and singer, was performing on a revolving stage surrounded by artificial palm trees. The lounge was lit by low-powered light bulbs. A young man had unscrewed one of the bulbs to give him and his date privacy while they kissed. Stanley Tomaszewski, a 16-year-old busboy, was instructed to put the light back on. He stepped onto a chair to reach the light in the darkened corner. 
Unable to see the bulb, he lit a match to illuminate the area. The lit match caught on some of the palm tree fronds near the ceiling. Despite Waiter's efforts to douse the fire with water, it spread to the fabric-covered false ceiling above, showering patrons with sparks and burning shreds of fabric. Flames raced up the stairway to the main level, burning the fleeing patrons. A fireball burst through the front entranceway and spread through the main club areas. In less than five minutes, the entire place was on fire. Some patrons were instantly overcome by smoke as they sat in their seats. Others crawled through the smoky darkness trying to find exits, all but one of which was either non-functioning or hidden in non-public areas. Side doors had been bolted to prevent people from leaving without paying. The building's main entrance was a single revolving door. It was useless. The crowd stampeded in panic. Bodies piled up behind both sides of the revolving door, jamming it until it broke. The fire, sensing the oxygen, instantly shot through the breach, incinerating whoever was left alive in the pile. On the street, firefighters lugged out flaming bodies. Soldiers and sailors raced to assist. The night deepened. The temperature dropped. Water and hoses froze to the ground. Smoldering bodies, living and dead, were hosed with icy water. Some victims had breathed in fumes so hot that upon inhaling cold air, they dropped like stones. It took several hours to get the fire under control. The Coconut Grove was the deadliest nightclub fire in history, killing 492 people, which that number alone was 32 more than the building's authorized capacity. Hours later, Buck Jones was discovered slumped under his table, severely burned. He died on November 30th, 12 days shy of his 51st birthday. This is Ali Silva of Fireside Mystery Theater, coming to you at a time of great peril. Some fiend has tied me to a rope dangling just a few feet over a giant boiling cauldron of... What is that? It smells like gazpacho? But gazpacho is supposed to be served cold. Oh, whatever. Why would I put myself in such a situation? Because we at Fireside Mystery Theater will do whatever it takes to create exciting audio drama. Enjoy our acclaimed anthology series of original eerie radio plays, performed before a live audience by a full cast of magnificent actors and a crew of amazing musicians and technicians. Just go to FiresideMysteryTheater.com for show listings, info about us, and links to our podcast. Take a listen for yourself today and find out why our podcast is among one of the top audio drama series out there. Oh, brother. That villain is cutting my rope. Well, that must mean my time is up. So tune in and subscribe to the Fireside Mystery Theater podcast. Oh, and be sure to mind the shadow. The ropes of the Third Reich of Adolf Hitler are in Prague, and the Republic of Czechoslovakia is no more.
an jedem Tag nur zu denken an Deutschland, an Volk und an Reich, an unsere deutsche Nation. Unser deutsches Volk siegt heile! Sieg heile! Sieg heile! Sieg heile! Sieg heile! Sieg heile! My friends, let us sit down together again, you and I, to consider our own pressing problems that confront us. There are many among us who in the past closed their eyes to events abroad because they believed in utter good faith what some of their fellow Americans told them, that what was taking place in Europe was none of our business. To those who would not admit the possibility of the approaching storm, to all of them, the past two weeks have meant the shattering of many... Well, radio had a tremendous effect, I think, in the development of the country in, in that decade. Uh, people were glued to their sets to hear the president really take them into his confidence and tell them what was going on. At least they regarded it in that light. It was exactly the right moment for radio to flourish. You know, here was home entertainment that didn't cost you anything. Not only national entertainment, but in making people for the first time conscious of what was going on in the world. Toward the end of the decade, uh, radio really, I think, converted this country from a traditional isolationism to a feeling of participation in the world. Here you could hear, this is not my idea of pleasure, mind you, but you could hear Adolf Hitler in your living room, and you could hear those horrible roars of the crowd, the Sieg Heil, Sieg Heil, and you could hear Mussolini ranting from his balcony, and you could hear Winston Churchill warn his government. <laughs> Cavalcade of America, presented by DuPont, Better Living Through Chemistry. Tonight we bring you a radio portrait of Annie Oakley and the legend of her crack marksmanship, which to the men and women of her era became their national prize, and to us, one of America's fondest memories. To portray the role of Annie Oakley, we present Agnes Moorhead of the Cavalcade Players. The orchestra and the original musical score are under the direction of Don Voorhees. DuPont, maker of better things for better living through chemistry, presents Agnes Moorhead as Annie Oakley on the Cavalcade of America. Would you say that, uh, we were talking about Sorry Wrong Number a moment ago, would you say that that was your... Most exciting radio performance? No. no. I've had loads of exciting radio performances. I don't think that, that that's just a, that just happens to be a memorable one, but no. I mean, well, many of them. Many of the ones on Cavalcade of America. Oh, so many of them that were, that were exciting. Howdy, Mr. John. Howdy, ma'am. Why? Danny Mosey, growed up already. Annie Oakley now, ma'am. I took Mama's name after Pa died, and she went away. Been out shooting myself some supper. Huh. Nothing to shoot in these parts, except in that chicken hawk up there. Trying for a week to bring him down. That ain't so high. Stand back so as I can swing, will you? Thanks. 
So you've got him. With one shot. <laughs> Wish getting game was as easy as that. Game? Oh, help me get this kid on down, Mr. Shaw. Sure. <laughs> Here. Here you are, ma'am. Partridges. Six partridges. You're welcome to them. I shot them on your property. Tomorrow I'll scare up some quail if you'd like me to. Say, Annie, why don't you stay a spell with us? Well, I'm not much good around the house, ma'am. Oh, don't you worry your head over that, Annie. Just you get the game. I'll cook it. Joe. Yes, Ma. Annie can't do her best shooting with this rusty old gun of hern. How about you trading yours for it? Well, guess so, Ma. Oh, I hate to take your new gun, Mr. Shaw. The Lord himself sent you to us, Annie Oakley. I'm not one to slow up the Lord's work. Neither is my husband. By the time Germany invaded Czechoslovakia in 1939, the cavalcade of America had been on the air for four years. Its sponsor, the DuPont Company, had been branded a merchant of death in the years following World War I because of the huge profit the company had made by manufacturing gunpowders during the war. The advertising agency, Batten Barton, Durston and Osborne, was charged with creating a positive campaign. Cavalcade was the answer. Originally heard from New York on CBS, the show featured some of the East Coast best radio and theater actors and actresses. As World War II began, Cavalcade dramatized stories of American ingenuity and courage, as well as tales from the past, like on the June 16, 1941 episode, when Agnes Moorhead starred as American sharpshooter Annie Oakley, who'd only passed away 15 years prior. And on November 17, 1941, when Errol Flynn starred as George Armstrong Custer, and they died with their boots on. Come in. Beg to report, sir. The regiment's ready for action, sir. Right. Be along in a moment. Yes, sir. I, uh, General Custer, sir. Hmm? What is it, Roberts? I've been meaning to ask you ever since you got back to Fort Lincoln. Uh, the... What do you honestly think our chances are of coming back from the Little Bighorn? Well, I... Why do you ask that? Well, sir, you seem my wife. We haven't been married very long, and I thought... Well, if there's not much hope of our getting back. Oh. Well, Roberts, we're... We're 600 men against the combined strength of every Indian fighting man in this territory. They're fighting to defend their last sanctuary, the Black Hills. And I don't blame them. But it's them or us. And I'm afraid it's going to be us. In other words... In other words, we haven't a ghost of a chance of coming back alive from the little beacon. That's what I thought, sir. Thank you, sir. Oh, uh, Roberts. Yes, sir? I don't think I'd tell your wife if I were you. It'll be easier for her that way, however it turns out. Perhaps you're right. Thank you, sir. Right. You can mount the columns now if you like. I won't be long. Yes, sir. We'll be waiting, sir. All right. George? Oh, come in, my dear. I'm just trying to soften up these old jackboots. Stiffened up a bit since the last time I was in them. They might have done a better job polishing them up. Well, I doubt if Crazy Horse will notice. George, I... 
Here's your cartridge, Bill. Thank you, my dear. Now then, anything I've forgotten? Field glasses? Yes. Compass? Got it. Your watch? Watch? Oh, here it is. You know, Libby, they ought to make you quartermaster general. Every time I go into the field, I'm the best equipped man in the regiment. <laughs> oh, oh, look what I've done. What is it? Well, your, your little miniature. It's oh. broken. I'll be able to take this with me. It'll be the first time you've ever gone on a campaign without this miniature. Yes. Well, there isn't any time to fix it, and I can't take any chances on its being lost. I'm afraid it doesn't look much like me anymore. Why, it does. You haven't changed, though. <laughs> I'm sure you're the only soldier in history who ever became a general without letting his belt out. <laughs> oh, ho, you wait until we've finished up here. Washington staff job for two years, and I'll be as fat as any old general. And twice as pompous. <laughs> we'll grow old and fat together. It'll be wonderful. Mm-hmm. Together. And people will say... Don't tell me that life out in Dakota was such a hardship. The Custers grew fat and happy on it. You have been happy here, haven't you, Libby? Don't I look happy? Yes. Well, let me see now. My orders. I put them in that drawer. I'll get them. Hey, what's this? What? Oh, that... That's my diary. My life with General Custer. I didn't know you kept Oh, it, it, it wouldn't interest you, dear. Just silly things that seem important to a woman. May 16th, 1876. Tomorrow my husband leaves. And I cannot but feel that my last happy days are ended. A premonition of disaster such as I have never known is weighing upon me. I try to shut it into my heart. But it is almost unbearable. I pray, God, I be not asked to walk on alone. I probably wrote that or something like it every time you left me. Of course. Of course, I know. I often feel the same way myself. When will you come back? This time? Oh, five weeks. Six at the most. See, that'll be... Say... June the 25th. Mm -hmm. I'll make an entry on that day, too. My husband returned today. Yes. Goodbye, my dear. Goodbye, George. Goodbye, General Custer. Goodbye. Some seven weeks later, after what was to go down in history as one of the tragic battles of all time, Custer's last stand, the War Department of the United States made a simple entry in its records. It is the life history of a soldier. Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer, born December 5th, 1839, 
Brevetted Major General April 15, 1865. Killed in action June 25, 1876. Less than three weeks later, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor in Manila, thrusting the U.S. into World War II. We sincerely hope that your new motion picture, They Died With Their Boots On, enjoys the success it so well merits when it's released and shown throughout the country. Ladies and gentlemen, in a few moments, our star will return to the microphone. But first, we have some music from Manila. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. I think that the decisions are made now by people who really have no training or understanding in the creative fields. They are mostly businessmen. Their only concern is, is economic. And the young people who move into the so-called creative spots, I don't know how they're supposed to have the... the understanding to do it because they have no training. They, they have no background at all in, in creative work. They don't understand writing. They don't understand directing. They don't understand anything about it. It's all economic. And this began back in those days. Uh, it began with the great importance placed upon the sales department. Glendale Tower to Pan American Trip 7, wind east 7, altimeter setting 29.92. You're clear to land on runway number 2. Pan American Trip 7 to Glendale Tower, Wilco. The controls of an airplane are elementary. When you push the stick forward, the nose drops. When you pull the stick back, the nose comes up. Wings for defense, wings for commerce, the symbol of our world of today, September 7th, 1941. It's a pathetically contradictory world of streamlined speed and heartbreaking strife, of achievement and destructive war. But the symbol for both war and achievement is the airplane. And the airplane is also a symbol for the great modern city of Glendale, California, one of the aviation centers for the globe-circling airlines, for training flyers for the Army and Navy, for Canada and the RAF. Yet, only a hundred years ago, this great area of factories and homes was undreamed of. Where Flintridge, Eagle Rock, Highland Park, Occidental College, Garvanza now lie, the lofty mountains stood silent sentinel over vast solitudes of waving grain fields and pasture lands. It was the Rancho San Rafael. Let's go back through the years and relive the romance of the ranchos. (laughs) 
On September 7, 1941, a new program took to the air over CBS's Pacific Coast Network from their Los Angeles flagship KNX. It was called Romance of the Ranchos. It was high art, a 35-episode run on the history of Southern California from the 1770s to present, written by the man you just heard, John Dunkel. The Title Insurance and Trust Company of Los Angeles presents The Romance of the Ranchos, dramatizing the romance and adventure connected with the growth of this great state. Each week at this time, our wandering vaquero, Frank Graham, uncovers another fascinating story of events and people who built the land we know today as Southern California. Beginning with this first episode, Rancho San Rafael, the writers, through the voice of Frank Graham, well known to KNX listeners as the star of Nightcap Yarns, told the history of the old Spanish land grants, or ranchos, from the archives of the sponsor, Frank Graham, the title insurance and trust company of Los Angeles. Our story tonight is one I know you will enjoy, selected from the vast files of the title insurance and trust company of Los Angeles. You see, it's the business of this company to know the history of our Southland. Yes, the vast historical files of this company of necessity contain detailed records, available nowhere else in such accessible form, of California's glamorous past, back to the earliest Spanish land grants, one of the first of which was Rancho San Rafael. Each week, for your enjoyment, we recreate from these records a true story, replete with the drama, gaiety, and tragedy, romance and hatred, triumph and disaster, that so filled the colorful transition period from the days of the Dones and the Gold Rushes to the present time. Our story tonight is a fascinating one, set in the fertile section of Southern California, which became one of the first of the great ranchos. Rancho San Rafael. The researcher for the firm, W.W. Robinson, claimed the company had more than 3,000 volumes dealing with rancho history. The years drop away as we go back, searching. This first episode also featured a man who Dunkel would later collaborate with on Gunsmoke, Howard McNear. Let us stop here just a moment. 1904. 1904 was a big year for Glendale, even though the town had not become a city as yet. For it was that year. Here it comes now. Here comes the first car. Yep, that's right. Here it is. It's rounding the bend. And just think, man. That car will take us into Los Angeles in less than an hour. Yes, and it takes three at least in the spring wagons. Well, I guess it's time to start proceedings. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, now, folks, folks, quiet, please. I'm going to ask the man who was chiefly responsible for this great event to drive the last spike in the rails. So step up here, Mr. L.C. Brand. Well, thank you. Thank you, folks. This is a great day for Glendale, and no one will be any happier than I will to see that car roll up here. <laughs> here you are, sir. Now, pounder in. All right, boys. Stand back. Yeah, stand back, yeah. That's it. That's it, Mr. Brad. <laughs> well, there it is. You can give the car the signal now. All right, boys. Bring her in. There she is. The Pacific Electric is here. Dr. James. Dr. James. Yes, what is it, Dora? Come quickly. It's father. He's dying. You mean Verdugo? Yes, yes, of course. I'll come. Hurry, hurry. As the people of Glendale welcomed the future, the past was slipping away from them. For on his deathbed lay Teodoro Verdugo, respected citizen, one of the last of the Dones, and with him, 
time wrote the final chapter in the story of the great Rancho San Rafael. Can't anything be done. I'm sorry, my dear. Oh, Papa, see too. My child, you must not cry. I leave you the good name of Verdugo. If I left you nothing else, you would be rich. Honor it, keep it high, where it has always been. And this land, the Rancho San Rafael, even though it belongs to others now. Do what you can to make it a fine place for people to live. That is what my grandfather, Don Jose Maria, would have wished. He loved the Rancho San Rafael. As I Papacito. <laughs> Yes, Teodoro Verdugo loved the Rancho San Rafael, as had his father and his grandfather before him. It was from that love of the land that burned in the heart of Jose Maria Verdugo that the Rancho San Rafael was first formed. But we must go back farther through the years to find that story. It was on one lovely sun-filled day in the 1770s that... Much of the series centered around the problems experienced by early Californios due to their isolation from provincial Mexico which eventually culminated in California becoming part of the United States after the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo ended the Mexican-American War. Well, Jose, now maybe you don't like being a soldier so much. How do I not, Carlos? Ah, sending us out into this wilderness, this desert. What are we to do? It isn't so bad at the mission. We are busy keeping the Indians in order and, and we have adventure. But why do we have to leave San Diego? Think of the times we could have had there, the fiestas and the senoritas. Ah, the senoritas. There are no senoritas in San Gabriel. Ah. Yeah, what you should do is get married and settle down. See, the fine chance I have here. Uh, too bad. You should get married and settle down, too. Oh, 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 not me. I'm a soldier and I like it. I stay a soldier. Ah, but one of these days, a lovely senorita and... <laughs> you'll be tired of this life. Never. But I tell you, Carlos... If I ever did decide to settle down somewhere and get married, I do not think I could find a better spot than right here. Stop a minute. Look up there. Oh, here, chapel. Oh, just look at the vista. The mountains and the green valley. And the trees. See, it's very pretty. Oh, very pretty. It's beautiful. See. Here, what's this? Jose, a party of travelers coming down the road. Yeah, it's good land too, Carlos. Would make a very fine rancho. See, near the mountains are streams. There will be fish. And there, over there, you could raise corn and grapes and pumpkins for food. And there in the distance is pasture land for cattle. Jose, look, there's a senorita. A senorita? Yes, see, riding with the party. Look. See, so it is. Accompanied by two gentlemen and a padre. See, and she is... Madre mio, she is beautiful. See, Buenos dias, senorita. Buenos dias, senor corporal. May we be of service? No, gracias, senor. Our journey is almost over. I'm quite safe, gracias. Buenos dias. Buenos dias. Ah, what a lovely face and such a smile she gave me. 
I thought that this sun had just come up. Ah, perhaps this desert does have at least one oasis in it, eh, Jose? Ah, she was lovely. You noticed it too, huh? Then I know she was truly beautiful. I wonder what could her name be? Huh? Oh, <laughs> Jose, you old soldier. So you could never be charmed by a senorita, eh? <laughs> well, my friend, perhaps you were wrong. Perhaps that look in your eye is love, no? Perhaps the great Jose Maria Verdugo has been struck at last. <laughs> the sponsor's agency, Buchanan, offered free copies of a 40-page compendium booklet. And it won the 1945 award for the most effective institutional series from the City College of New York. They were married to San Gabriel Mission. And now, Jose had definite ideas about his future. One day, as he returned from his duties, his wife, Maria, called. John Dunkel was no hack. He took great pains to portray the Californios with obvious Mexican and Spanish heritage as equal to their American brethren. It's here. What's come? What is it, Jose? It is news I've been waiting for. Give it to me. No. Jose Verdugo, before another minute, you must tell me what you have to do with the governor. You've been keeping something from me. (laughs) See, Maria, I have but it's just because I wanted to surprise you. My little doll, come here. There. Now, what would you like best to have? You, Jose. Oh, no, 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 no. I mean besides my ugly face. Well, perhaps a little one and a home of our own. See, that is it. I do want a home for you and the little ones that will soon be. And so I have laid my plans. Plans? What plans, Jose? Do you remember the day you first saw me? Riding on El Camino Viejo? See. Si. I was with the Padre, and you with Carlos. See, And do you remember the land, the beautiful valley, which we could see from there? See, That is where I want our home to be. Oh, Jose, it would be... It would be paradise. Oh, see, paradise. And so, I've asked the governor to let me keep some cattle on that land. If he says yes, then I can send my brother to build a house and start a rancho. And then later, when it is established, the governor cannot help but allow us to make our home there. It will be ours. So, you see, already our home is started. But, Jose... Suppose the governor refused. Eh? Oh, no, he could not do it. I don't think he could. Maria, give me the letter. See, here. I'd better open it, huh? See, go ahead. I I will open it. Read it. What does it say? It says, uh, I concede to the petitioner the permission he solicits to keep his cattle and horses. Maria, do you hear it? It says, I concede to the petitioner the permission he solicits. They were stories of Phineas Banning and William Mulholland, the two men responsible for Southern California's principal aqueducts, as well as Joaquin Morietta, who spent four years robbing wagon trains after drunken miners lynched his brother and raped and murdered his wife in 1849. Marietta was tracked down in 1853 and executed by a band of vigilantes called the California Rangers. He took his second step. At the close of the final episode, Frank Graham offered listeners a free map of all 52 of the ranchos covered in the series. And the show was heard in syndication into the late 1940s. I suffer from the I know. You haven't ridden out on any patrols for a long time, proper. Although announcer Frank Graham had a robust career in radio, film, and Disney voice acting, 
on the evening of September 2nd, 1950. He parked his convertible in his carport at home, turned on the ignition, and committed suicide. He had been set to resume his role as announcer for R. Miss Brooks in the fall. He left behind his parents and two siblings. Frank Graham was 35 years old. I went to Chicago uh -huh. to do Grand Hotel with Don oh, Amici, yes. uh -huh. and I did that before I did Mary Marlin. I see. Well, how did? where did you come from? Came from New York City, where I was born. Uh -huh. Had done some radio in Cincinnati at Station WLW, and I went there greener than the grass. But I did do an awful lot of shows there in three months. I was there when Fats Waller was there, you know, oh. and the Rhythm Boys, and it was pretty exciting. Was that the beginning of your professional career? No, I'd been on the stage. Before then. What were you doing on the stage? Trying to act. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I went to the American Laboratory Theater School uh -huh. and studied with Maria Uspenskaya, the great Russian actress, and Richard Boleslavsky, mm -hmm. who was the great Russian director-writer. And they became wonderful friends of mine, thank goodness. And then I went from the lab to my first Broadway play, which didn't hit Broadway, called The Husband Habit, Grace George, Melvin Douglas, and Walter Connolly. Mm -hmm. But it was a spring tryout, but that was the beginning. And then I did, I played season with Ethel Barrymore in School for Scandal, and I did repertory in Boston, but that was not what I would call a living. Three p.m. G-R-U-E-N. Gruen Precision Watch Time. See the Gruen very thin. W-E-A-F, New York. This program may be interrupted to bring you the latest war bulletins. Ivory Snow presents A Woman of America. Ivory Snow brings you the story of Prudence Dane, a woman of America whose courage and faith are the glorious heritage of all women of America today. Radio's first significant Western soap opera, A Woman of America, today, a woman of America told the dramatic story of a young woman's struggle to find happiness in the frontier West. It starred Anne Seymour as Prudence Dane, who set out from Pennsylvania in 1865 with a group of pioneers in a covered wagon bound for Kansas City. First, I'd like to remind your listeners By the time Woman of America took to the air on January 25, 1943, Anne Seymour was one of radio's busiest actresses 
earning the nickname Miss Inner Sanctum and starring simultaneously in many soap operas. Procter & Gamble, who was the sponsor, can I say sponsors? Sure. Uh, sure. Decided that they wanted to have a sort of a, well, they were trying out, testing a show called, a radio show called Woman of America. Mm. And I did that in the morning and then Mary Marlin in the afternoon for about two years, I guess. And then Lipton Tea, I think it was, bought Mary Marlin, took it to CBS, three o'clock. We were on three o'clock, Mary Marlin, in New York. They put Woman of America in Mary Marlin's spot, so I couldn't, that time, I couldn't go mm. with Mary Marlin. The show's scenario involved battles with hostile Native Americans, schemers, and con artists, as well as braving the harsh elements and disease. Authorized in 1806 by an act of Congress, our then young and struggling federal government undertook the building of a national road to lead west over the mountains that isolated the Atlantic seaboard from the rest of America. Extended in 1825 to the Mississippi River, in the decades that were to come, it proved itself a deciding factor in our national life by making the people see the value of centralized government. Along its entire length rumbled the heavy Conestoga wagons loaded with freight and produce, named, like the breed of horses that drew them, from the place of their origin, Conestoga County, Pennsylvania. Always the road pointed like a beckoning finger to the rich vastness of the uncharted west that lay beyond. But its most precious cargo was the people. People by the thousands, like Prudence Dane and Wade Douglas. Like all those of the little Dane caravan who traveled its length and beyond. And so it was that night in June so many years ago... As Prudence quietly closed the door of Wade's cabin and started across the moonlit compound of the frontier outpost of Fort Donaldson. Prude, come back here. Good night, darling. Come and have breakfast at my cabin in the morning. Oh, dear God, please. He must see that valley once more before it happens. He must. He loves it so. And I promise I'll do my part. Nothing, not even our marriage, shall delay the start. Only let him see that valley. Let him ride with the wind on his face, a whole man across it once more. In Christ's name, amen. Forgotten is the hurt Prudence felt when Wade placed the date of their wedding second to the start of the wagon train. For she realizes full well how closely interlocked are the two events in Wade's mind. A great peace descends over her, and a few minutes later, she comes to her own darkened cabin. And as she pushes open the door... Prue, is that you? Yes, Peg, it's me. Oh, I'm sorry I awakened you. I wasn't asleep. Oh, there's a candle and matches there on the table. I don't need them. I can see well enough by the moonlight. How's Wade feeling? Wasn't it just wonderful the way he walked in on the meeting tonight? Didn't you just love it? It was dramatic, wasn't it? And isn't it marvelous that the wagon train's getting started day after tomorrow? Yes. Oh, you should have heard Emmy. You'd have thought Wade had said we were going to start for the moon. <laughs> I can just hear her. <laughs> she said she just can't possibly get ready. Well, not in less than a week. And Emmy will be the first one to be packed, though. You watch and see. <laughs> what did the doctors say about Wade, Prue? Was he angry because he got out? Jim wasn't very pleased about it, but wasn't much he could do. 
Didn't seem to hurt Wade a bit. Oh, I'm so glad. You know you're awfully lucky to have him in love with you, don't you, Prue? I know, Peg. And I'm very grateful. Prue? Yes? Are you going to be married before the wagons start? Are you, Prue? No. No, we're not, Peg. But why not? I thought you I know I did, but that was before I knew we'd be starting so soon. You see... There's so much to be done. But you've got your dress. I was thinking things that have to be done so the caravan can start. We'll all be too busy to worry about about anything else. Oh, Prue. I mean it, Peg. Nothing must delay the start. Every last one of us must do all we can to help. Nothing is more important than that. Don't you call getting married important? Compared to the start of the wagon train, no. You see, Peg, if we were living back east in a town somewhere, the wedding would be important. But in a wagon train, nothing takes precedence over the common good of all. So, whatever my personal feelings might be, they'll have to be put aside. At least, until the wagon train gets underway. Originally broadcast at 10.45 a.m., the series was shifted to 3 p.m. Eastern wartime on September 27, 1943, to allow for greater West Coast's exposure. Although the show was a 15-minute serial, there was only time for 10 minutes of scripted drama, with two-and-a-half-minute commercials for Procter & Gamble's Ivory Snow opening and closing the broadcast. This episode was from D-Day Plus One on June 7, 1944. Now the sun is almost overhead as Wade approaches Tom Hatfield, who is busy at his wagon. Miss Seymour was backed by some of radio's most talented New York actors, like Santos Ortega, Everett Sloan, Ed Bagley, Chester Stratton, Linda Carlin, and Irene Hubbard. Unfortunately, the series changed writers and directors numerous times, which led to storyline, cast, and listener confusion. See, it was during the war, and I thought it was going to be something to help the modern American woman see how the pioneer woman went mm -hmm. through the problem. Well, they had a terrible time with it. We had, I think, seven directors and I don't know how many writers. And they never found out exactly what was going on. In the beginning, I remember dear Santos Ortega played my husband in the first mm -hmm. show and died immediately. And <laughs> Santos was a darling man and he was, he was the quickest killing off of a hero in, in radio I know of. And then Jimmy Monks played my love and I had the three children. Joan Tetzel was one of them. And Jack Manning was another. And they decided, no, she shouldn't have children. So I left them somewhere in the middle of the, the trek west, mm -hmm. which I didn't understand. Then we had another writer come and say, oh, she must have children. They brought them back. It was really kind of a mess, if you'll forgive me they for saying so. They didn't follow any logic with No it. logic at all. Well, as a matter of fact, I think after you then left they modernized that series, it. yeah, they brought it up to date, Yeah, and they? then it died. Yeah. I mean, it's a Prudence, a newspaper woman. editor. Uh, Florence Freeman played her. <laughs> I had a little difficulty with that show, I must admit. After the war ended, it was decided that Prudence Dane's legacy should be magically transported into the 20th century to a town called Danesville, where her great-great-grandchildren, led by Prudence Dane Barker, voiced by Florence Freeman, took over the cast. The changes didn't take. A woman of America left the airways on June 21st, 1946. By then, the war was over, and William Paley, head of CBS, had returned. He brought with him 
new ideas for post-war programming, with designs on making CBS the country's number one network. In less than three years, William Paley would accomplish his goal. CBS is now the leader. Today, not tomorrow. That is what I take deepest pride in as I talk to you. In the fact that CBS today, all of you, already have the largest audiences in all radio, day and night. The largest individual audiences, the largest average audiences. This is an achievement of which you can be particularly proud. It couldn't have happened without your management and your facilities, without your own great status in the community. And we all recognize, I think, that it couldn't have happened as it has in just this past year without the accomplishments of the CBS package program operation. In the field of adventure, one new program has caused more comment and excitement in recent weeks than any entertainment series in many seasons. Variety, in their review, used such words as first-rate, high-level, suspense, and excitement. And these words have not been confined to trade papers. Popular magazines and newspapers have added their own accolades. For here is a mature, adult, blazing Western that tops them all. CBS Radio is proud to present this brief segment of Gunsmoke. A performance, or a good performance, or a bad performance for that matter, on a TV yeah. film or a motion picture lasts forever. And do you ever consider that, you know? I know, it's kind of frightening. 100 years from now, It's frightening because you think you did something that wasn't really very good and it's apt to come back and come back and haunt you. No, think of it this way. You've done something that was good and that well. because of the, the media that what you did that was so good will last forever. You know? Well, that's a very nice way to put it. It would be nice. I always think, wouldn't it be an idea of just awfulness if you had to go to the place where all the dead... TV and, and radio shows go. I mean, where do they go? Do they just disappear into space? Or is there a little nook up there, somewhere near Mars? And all of them are up there, and as a penance, you have to go up and stay with them. <laughs> Across the alley from the Alamo lived a pinto pony and a Navajo. Next time on Breaking Walls, as the radio industry goes from boom to bust in a nine-year period following World War II, the adult Western matures. Over-the-air relationships between Americans, Native peoples, and other cultures grow, captivating and educating listeners, while some of the medium's best evolve from also-rans to legends before the country's very ears. Along the railroad track They were swishing out a-looking the reading material used in today's episode was On the Air, the Encyclopedia of Old Time Radio by John Dunning. Radio Rides the Range, a reference guide to Western drama on the air, 1929 to 1967 by Jack French and David S. Siegel. Network Radio Ratings, 1932 to 1953 by Jim Ramsberg. Hello Everybody, The Dawn of American Radio by Anthony Rudell and The Network by Scott Woolley. On the interview front, Don Amici, Joan Fontaine, Hans Conried, Rudy Valley. They were all with Dick Bertel and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. The full interviews can be heard 
at goldenage-wtic.org. Agnes Moorhead and Ann Seymour were with Chuck Shaden. Chuck's interviews from an over 39-year career can be listened to for free at speakingofradio.com. John Dunkel and William N. Robeson were with John Hickman for his WAMU program, Recollections. A modern version of this program is heard each Sunday evening as the big broadcast. For more information, please go to WAMU.org. Ruth Woodman was with Ida Blackburn in 1961 for KOCO. And journalist Robert Bendenier was with Westinghouse for their 1970 50th anniversary program. Then they took this cheap vacation. The shoes were polished. Selected music featured in today's episode was The Colorado Trail, Opus 28 by Elizabeth Hainan, The Last Rose of Summer by Tom Waits, Morning Prayer by Kenneth Little Hawk, All Mortal Flesh, Be Silent by Deirdre Fay, Across the Wide Missouri by Matthias Gold, Molly Mason, Jay Unger, and Andy Stein. Jefferson and Liberty by John Owen Laudenois. Amazing Grace by Lee Rector. And Across the Alley from the Alamo by the Mills Brothers. Special thanks to our sponsors, as always, the Fireside Mystery Theater, and our new sponsor, the Mutual Audio Network. Both of these can be visited at websites of the same name. And I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA Radio Network and go to spurvac.com, S-P-E-R-D-V-A-C.com. Breaking Walls, Episode 90, will continue our story on the history of the adult radio western. It will focus on the period between World War II and the American proliferation of television. This episode will be available beginning April 1st, 2019, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. I'll also have concrete news and subscription information on Burning Gotham this month. I can't wait to share with you what's been heating in this kitchen. I've been working on it since last June. It's going to be a completely original, new audio drama series. The teaser trailer for it is available and can be listened to at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, if you haven't yet, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever podcasting platform you listen, especially iTunes. It really does help with the algorithm, and it'll help more people discover this show. And if you've got some spare change, you can become a Patreon supporter for as little as $1 per month by going to patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So, until April 1st, 2019, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls, episode number 89. And I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. Across the alley from the Alamo When the starlight beams its tender glow The beans go to sleep and then there ain't no dough For the people passing by One day they went a-walking Along the railroad track They were swishing out a-looking Toot-toot they never came back across the alley from the Alamo when the 
the summer sun decides to settle low. A fly sings an Indian hi-de-ho to the people passing by across the alley from the Alamo.